right, everybody, welcome to another RPC podcast, Bible study part two. Last week, we talked through the background section of trying to understand how you can look into other aspects of a text to help you get context for what you're about to read. And now we're going to take a step from Matthew's background of the genealogy of Jesus and move forward a little bit. And we want to talk through observations. I've told some people before, we're not going to do this from the standpoint of, you know, having already done it, because the goal here is, is not necessarily just to have a Bible study in front of you for now but also to teach people how to study the Bible. We're going to do some of the prep work together, which is how we pull together our observations. Tom, for example, has already done his observations in advance, so that little cheater is going to have to uh, play ball with us a little bit here. But let's everybody go to Matthew 1. I'm going to use the ESV version, but if you all want to use different translations, sometimes that can lead to interesting observations. Right now, I'm going to Matthew 1, and I think it's verse 18 is where we're going to start. When I do observations, there's usually a handful of uh, ways that we can approach it. In order to know that you're really looking into the text, it would be easy just to you know, look at a verse and say, oh, here's two or three things I noticed. Instead, I want to pull out 20. The guy who discipled me always trained me. You really want to make sure that you're looking deeply. And so at one point, he was going through a couple verses in Isaiah, and he says, I want you to do 20 per verse. So there are two verses, did 40. And at some point he says, okay, well, how hard was that? And you know, the first, probably out of the 40, the first 25 were not bad. Going from 25 to 30 was a little bit of a stretch. And then hitting the last 10, man, that was a little difficult to pull that out, especially just trying to do it on my own for the first time. And then once I got to 40s, like, feels pretty good, sense of accomplishment, right? And I say, yeah, that was awesome. He says, okay, now go to 60. And then I get to 60 and he says, and if we had the time, I could make you go to 80 and you could do it. The idea here is not just to be impressive for the sake of being impressive. It's that we want to make sure that we know how to look for things that we wouldn't naturally observe from a cursory reading. When we're doing that, there's a few ways you can break down your types of observations in order to help you think of things that you might not have thought to look for before. So I use the acronym GRAPES. Does anybody want to dive into that a little bit so I'm not talking all the time? Yeah, sure, I can do that. Uh, so GRAPES is grammar, repetition, absence, which you've always said is the hardest one, patterns, extra textual, and statements. Spelling out grapes for us. So give me an example, somebody, somebody else, of uh, what grammatical observations would look like. And let's start with Matthew 1.18. Pull through. Tell me, tell me some grammatical observations that we can see out of this verse. Does somebody want to read the verse first? That might be helpful. Might be a good idea. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So what's grammatical observation number one? Tom, why didn't you put any grammar in your cheat sheet? <laughs> That's listed as G on my sheet. I see that, but it looks complicated. So what Tom said on his sheet, I think he's too bashful to say it, is the verb, and he puts some Greek here, meaning had been betrothed, is in the aorist particle, participle. Dude, that's way too complicated. Errorist. Where are you guys seeing this cheat sheet? <laughs> oh, I, I begged him for it. Oh, oh my gosh. He's man. a little cheetah. The hard sale. All right, so say that observation again. Tom, you're going to have to say it. Okay. Basically, the, the Greek uh, verb for had been betrothed, which, if I can pronounce it, is menestithesis. 
Minasnuthuses is in an ARS participle, and that's that's one of the more complicated participles, as I understand. It doesn't really tell you whether it's ongoing or if it's complete. It just is. It doesn't give you very much information. But I think the translators have got it right that it's an action that took place in the past. That is, the betrothal of Mary to Joseph took place in the past. So we're talking in a past tense when uh, we're saying when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Yes, exactly. Let me just ask on that then. When it says his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, does that mean that she wasn't anymore? No, you wouldn't get that from the heiress tense, uh, rather the heiress participle. You wouldn't get it from that because that doesn't imply that it's come to a conclusion okay. from the grammar, but also from the surrounding text, which I know we're only looking at this verse, but if we if we were to take some extra textual stuff and we looked at the other verses, we would know that the marriage later happens. We look at verse 24, that Joseph wakes up from his sleep. He does as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, which is in the context he married her. What are other tense issues that we can see throughout the verse? Well, we have this weird thing about being in a between state. It's before they actually get married. So it's when they're betrothed. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So before they came together, that is a reference to them actually getting married. When she was betrothed, but before they were married, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. What we would normally consider to be the engagement period nowadays. I'm hearing you say there's a time issue generally as to it's telling us where or when these things happen, which is in the past, and that the was found to be with child is also past tense the same way has or had been betrothed was past tense, but that it's also telling us when in conjunction those were, right? Yes, yes. That is the time frame the grammar is giving us. Yeah, the first sentence seems to be an introduction. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So that's like, all right, this all has happened in the past and it took place in this specific way. And everything else was indicating like how that took place, happening in past tense. And then all the other verbs correspond to that. Right. Another grammar uh, observation is the use of time words. So the first word in 18 is now. And then in the next sentence, it's when. And then before. That could also lead into repetition. So repetition of time words. Great. Moving on from grammar, just to keep going. So GR right? R is repetition. Obviously, aqua has already mentioned the idea that there are certain time words that are repeated throughout. Any other repetitions that you guys see here? Possibly the repetition of the subject. So we're talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. She was found to be with child. So there's a double reference to pregnancy. Okay. There's also repetition of family terms. So mother, child, betrothed. Let's look at the A for a second. What is absence? Somebody tell me examples, whether from this verse or generally, what an absence might entail. Basically something that you would expect to find, but you don't find. Right. So what would be a, a good absence for this particular verse? Uh, this one might be forcing it in. I, I've got a good absence for verse 25. Hurt, and it's kind of related to that. The absence being, it's it doesn't say whether they came together in the normal form of union. That is, whether they had sex, which is one of the big debates between Protestants and Catholics. But also, it doesn't tell you anything about the marriage. So it, it doesn't say anything about whether there were any other children in the picture. It doesn't say anything about whether the marriage was a special dedication to God, as some people have theorized. Uh, it just says that that. This woman, Mary, this man, Joseph, came together before the, the, they came together. This happened. So there's leaving quite a lot of details missing. Okay. Well, it seems like all of this happens before they were married. And then the, the before they came together part, that implies this is before marriage. So 
so it's contrasting that and then she's found with child so it's like oh you child out of you know before coming together there's something going on there that's like surprising oh yeah i suppose that also hasn't even said how she came to be with child from the holy spirit so it's elaborated on a mm. lot more in luke's gospel but mm -hmm. here that that whole narrative just doesn't you know there's no um there's no yeah there's no meeting with elizabeth there's no mary singing with well, the stuff we know happened it's not here i'll throw a couple ideas out because absence is actually one of my favorite things to go through and i always one of my favorite ways to approach absence even is to misread the verse in a way that some people could i uh, interpret it that way and so i always use the example of, for example i think it was john 14 21 uh, that says i and actually i'm blanking on the verse now <laughs> Whoever has my commandment. Yeah, that's right. Whoever, it, so John 14, 21 obviously says, whoever has gushy feelings toward me uh, is the one who loves me. And I too will love him. And right. Yep. So that's exactly no, right. That's not what it says. <laughs> it says whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Right. So that's an example of an absence of, you know, for some reason, we always interject these concepts into the passage. But when you look at the verse itself, the concept that we think of, about love being about gushy feelings is absent from the passage. And what is really said in the passage is different from the way that we practically live our lives, right? So that, that's just an example of how absence is approached. Uh, in this particular passage, you could throw out something like, you know, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to, and, you know, you could say God, right? Because the Catholics talk about nuns being betrothed to God and Mary is kind of like the predecessor of all of them. I or you know, especially when in the context of her having the Holy Spirit's child, right? So you, you could look at it from that way and say, well, you know, it's not saying that she's betrothed to God here the way that some people have interpreted her relationship. And, you know, they might give general credence to her being married to Joseph. But I'm pretty sure the Catholics interpret Mary as never having had sex with Joseph ever, that she remained a perpetual virgin throughout her life. I, and I just don't see that in this passage. And they may use other passages to prove it, but uh, it is, of course, relevant to note that. Another absence that you could find here might not be, a, you know, trying to misread the passage as a tease, but it could be uh, looking for a pattern that's incomplete, such as the passage mentions Jesus Christ and it mentions the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't mention God the Father. Yeah, in this one verse, you have two of the three persons of the Trinity. As a small aside, do you think, because you mentioned things that we would expect to be there, or interpretations we put on it could you label that as assumptions like absences and assumptions like we uh, assume yeah. that feelings me or feelings are imported um into that matthew or yeah known the john fourteen twenty one passage so in the same yeah. way certain things are being assumed like the catholics assume certain things about um mary being a virgin all the time so that would be that's not necessarily there, but it's being assumed that it's... Right. So in that scenario, I would say assumptions certainly would count as long as we're clarifying false assumptions. Correct. Yeah. So we don't want to be making observations, things that we assume as if they're true of the passage. Uh, but it is relevant to know things that are that are commonly assumed in certain groups, even, uh, but that just are not in the passage. So they're absent. Okay. okay. So that's A. So G-R-A-P stands for what? Patterns. All right. And do you guys see any patterns in this passage? No, I I always had oh. a hard time recognizing patterns. Like I don't, 
I don't know what the different kinds of patterns there are to recognize. Like right. we discussed at one point chiasmus, which is that's like an easy pattern to identify, but that's not in every verse. So it's like, what are the different kinds of patterns to identify? Yeah, and patterns tend to apply much easier as observations when you're looking at a broader spectrum of verses rather than mm -hmm. just one isolated verse. So you're probably not going to find many patterns verse by verse, but when you look at a whole paragraph, you'll see a lot more. Gotcha. That being said, it's worth noting that the difference between a pattern and a repetition is that repetition is the same thing over and over again. Patterns yeah. are different things that are interrelated with one another. And so I think the last time we did a, a study, I might have, Tom, you might have been in this one. I, but I remember going through and how it started with a past tense in the beginning of the verse. And then the middle of the verse, it showed a uh, present tense. And at the end of the verse, it was a future tense, right? And so you can see grammatically that there's a pattern of how the author was moving from past to present to future. Uh, another pattern is if you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not with an absence, but all three mentioned, because they're obviously three different persons, but they're they're being brought together in this singular verse. I And usually that's pretty significant when you see all three mentioned together, whether in a singular verse or paragraph. I, so those would be examples of patterns. Uh, and you could even look at... Uh, you know, the family terms, for example, we, I allowed you guys to have credit for that as a repetition, but that might be a pattern because mother, child, betrothed, they're all different terms, mm. but there's a pattern of them being referenced in conjunction with familial uh, identity. That being said, apart from the ones we just discussed, I don't know that I, I see very many other patterns in this particular verse. Do you guys? So you could look at all the proper nouns, like Jesus Christ, mother, Joseph, and Holy Spirit and how Jesus is related to each one of them. So like when his mother, so that's Jesus's mother, and then Joseph, and how is Jesus related to Joseph? And then also how is Jesus related to the Holy Spirit? I like it. So there's all the different ways that Jesus connects. We do have at least one reference to the Father, which is an angel of the Lord. That's probably the closest you get here is the dream that Joseph has. He has this visitation from an angel of the Lord. In verse 20. Oh, so you're talking about a, a future verse, so we're not there yet. Yes, yeah, right. Uh, by the way, I think with the reference to the uh, past, present, and future, was that John 6, verses 53, 54? That sounds right. Yeah, that, that was a really great example of a pattern. It was So Jesus said to them, and then uh, you have no life in you, present tense, and then I will raise him up on the last day, future tense. That's a real eye-opener of a... Of a pattern one that just had to be deliberate speaking of extra textual material the e in grapes is extra textual so when you're talking about the angel of the lord later on in the passage right being the uh, possibly a manifestation of the father uh, although i don't know that we would have to get there i don't know that i would interpret it that same way but the uh, when we're looking at extra textual information that is relevant to the verse that we have now. So it's not just any extra textual, right? It's not like, oh, my math book says that the square root of nine is three. Uh, that, that's irrelevant to the passage, so we're not going to bring it up. Uh, that's not an observation on this verse. The extra textual has to be related to the verse that we're studying in order for it to count. So with that in mind, what are some extra textual things that you guys might notice that help you understand this particular verse. And I'll give one example right off the top of my head is 
you know, I've done some reading up on Catholic theology and the perpetual virginity of marriage that they, or virginity that they believe that Mary had. I, don't, I totally botched that, I think. <laughs> when I've studied the Catholic interpretation of Mary and their belief of perpetual virginity, that would be an example of extra textual research that I have done and found that I can look at this verse I, and that makes me, you know, it's connected to the verse in some way. That I'm thinking about that when I'm reading this verse of, oh, is that true? Is that not true? Is that referenced here or not? And so that would be one example. Yes. And, and so you could, uh, you could bring in certain knowledge you have of the way other verses, like in the same chapter, verse 25 is used um, to, make, to make the case for or against. Or you might look at the case in Luke chapter 1 and 2, where it gives the same account of uh, what takes place here. And so just compare the different, uh, the different Greek words they use, for example, or uh, compare any different choices of phrase. These would count as extra textual. Right. Give me an example on this verse specifically. And I'm not just talking to you, Tom. That's open for anyone. Uh, we, have, we haven't heard from Joseph in a while. Or do you prefer to be called screw tape on these recordings? Uh, no, Joseph's fine. Okay. I know some people don't like having their name used. I'm looking at examples where the word betrothed is used in the Old Testament. Because I didn't know this, but it's a, uh, it, uh, it's not marriage, but it's the first stage of Jewish marriage. It's like, it's like a legal, it is legal. Like it does require divorce uh, to break off, but it's not quite marriage. So I was trying to look at any extra passages there before that may give us some context to where Joseph and Mary were at at the time. Right. Is it the same thing as engagement? It is not the same thing as engagement, but it is close. Yeah. So, and I use the word engagement when I've done writing on this on RPC in the past. I just, cause it's a familiar term that's easier to understand. Mm -hmm. Like Joseph is saying, yeah, the way that people were betrothed in that time is not the same as what we call marriage or engagement. It's an in-betweener phase where the best way to describe it is in being an attorney. Imagine that you entered into a contract with some people, but you hadn't signed the contract yet. So I always tell people sex is like signing the contract, right? You're sealing that with, you know, wet ink. And uh, then there's the meeting of the minds generally. It's kind of like the proposal where you, you're saying, hey, we agree that we're going to enter into a contract. We just haven't fleshed out all the terms yet. And what betrothal was, was when you had an actual meeting of the minds, the contract's drafted, you're ready to go, uh, and you're just waiting on the, the ceremonial signatory day. And when that happens, in many jurisdictions, I, I would even say all, depending on the type of law you're dealing with, once you have that meeting of the minds, even if it's not signed, as long as parties are acting on it, that's binding. <laughs> you are deemed to be under agreement and, and to follow through with that. And so there's, there, like Joseph says, there's a binding nature to it, even if it hasn't been sealed through having a wedding or having sex or any of that. So you kind of spooked me with the cheetah thing, but I did look at the, the Greek that was used here, the menestuthesis. Um, so it's interestingly enough, Mary is the only person, is the only object of this verb in the entire New Testament. And they use different verbs for descriptions of, for example, the woman who had been um, married to all these different men, or when the the uh, teachers of the law corner Jesus in Matthew 19, they use different um, Greek words to describe their state of affairs. And yet at the same time, 
the the English translators here have a little bit of a trouble describing what Joseph does in the next verse, right? Because it says that he went to divorce her quietly so as not to bring her shame. But we wouldn't say that you divorce an engaged woman. You'd say you just cool off the engagement in English. So there is a difference between the the engagement that we have here in the modern world and the engagement that's been spoke of in the betrothal of Menestuthesis. Right. Man, so I just pulled up a number of observations from there, some being, one being grammatical, and then I think I used three of yours as being, uh, or two of them being extra textual. From what I just said, or from something yeah. you were doing? From, from what you had just said. So that was three new observations right out of that. One is Mary's the only object of the verb. <laughs> Let's go to the last one, since those were quite a few extra textuals. And we, extra textual is one of those that I, is where a lot of research happens. And there can be a lot of extra textual observations you can make when you're studying a passage, either by looking at the history of a thing. So when you've done your background section appropriately, you should be fluent with the history and you can pull your observations from the background research you've done. Uh, or it can be from the surrounding passages, looking at what happened before, what happened after, uh, and trying to connect those and, and seeing why those uh, before and after verses uh, allow this one to be placed where it is in the middle. And all of that. So that's all extra textual. But the last one, S, and this is really the easiest of all of the observational uh, types, is statements. Statements are just things that you notice in the passage that you find to be uh, significant or important or just that are true and somehow relate to any type of uh, interpretation or question you might have. So what are just some statements of truth that you see in the passage? The Holy Spirit is identified as the cause of her pregnancy. Yes. All right. So the Holy Spirit is the cause of Mary's pregnancy. It says it right there. Child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mary is a virgin when she is betrothed and is found with child. Okay. It might seem a little simplistic, but highly relevant for theological purposes. Uh, just in that first phrase, the birth of Jesus Christ. I mean, the passage right there says Jesus was born. Right? He didn't descend from heaven like a spirit that assumed a bodily form. Right, He, he was born from flesh and bone. That's a good point because that's really going to matter later on when people are, I forget who's saying it, but like they're like, isn't this Jesus of you know, Nazareth? How is, you know, how is he the right. Christ if he was just born in this small town? Right. Oh, sure. When you, uh, you get no respect as a prophet in the region you were raised in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought you were going to go with the Gnostics, actually. I thought you were going to say the Gnostics are going to say in a few centuries that Jesus was just a spirit or had a spiritual resurrection. Ah, uh, that too. Yeah, the spiritual realms. Any other statements you guys want to observe? So another one I'll throw out there is uh, that Mary and Joseph, quote unquote, came together, right? And so some people would say that this is before it's just referencing generally marriage, like the Catholics who believe in perpetual virginity of Mary. I would say, oh, well, she he was never with Joseph. But the passage here does seem to imply, no, no, they, they came together. They became united in one. And so Is that that wet signature you were talking about? Right, that wedding. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been looking at these particular ones. I'm not, I'm not convinced that those ones are. But from the English, you would, like, you would definitely read that in English and say that's what it's implying. But I think in the Greek, it doesn't quite imply that. As uh, I don't know if we're going to get to uh, verse 25, but I think there's a there's a good linguistic argument that the until in verse 25 is not saying that 
this state of virginity came to an end that you can just get from the Greek. Uh, but then also that's something for later, really. That's uh, like, there's, there's so many observations that you could make and you can actually make contradictory observations. Right. So we're already up to 22 observations on this verse, which is more than I was planning on going into. So that's awesome. Uh, and you can see how when you're going through grapes, letter by letter, G-R-A-P-E-S, it's really not that hard to pull out 20 observations. I mean, we flew through those with very little pause. I, it gets a little trickier when you're doing grapes all together, saying just generally let me observe things and then figure out which category it fits into. But if you pick a category and say, I want to look for some of these types of things in the passage, you're going to find an easier time pulling those together. Uh, when it comes to statements in particular, an easy way that I have found to really make uh, headway with finding value in certain things that are said in the passage is just to read phrases in the passage with an emphasis on different words, right? So, for example, in the middle of the passage, we could say, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Or, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, right? And as you go through each of those, and you go from word to word, or even in the beginning, you could go, you know, now the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, why does it say now, right? It's going to prompt us those questions in your, well, that's an interesting way to introduce it. Not just saying the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, but now it did. Uh, or now the birth of Jesus Christ. He's not going to be born multiple times, right? It's one birth. It's not a birth of Jesus because there's going to be another one when he returns. No, he's going to turn ascending from heaven. So there's all kinds of things that you can pull out just by emphasizing different words. Uh, so that's a good way to get to statements. But let's move on to verse uh, 19, and we're going to see how fast we can hit the 20 mark on verse 19, which admittedly is about half the length of verse 18. But let's see if you guys can hit 20. I'm not going to tell you which letter you have to use, but when you give me an observation, I do want you to tell me what letter it's associated John, just one question before we do that. As this applies to Bible studies in general, um, I know you, you're also going to introduce this next section about interpretation, asking questions and finding application, but uh, how many observations would you make in your own Bible study of, of a single verse? And that's right. you know, just, just verse 18. Would you go for 20 or is that something that you just want to have as a, a benchmark to sometimes work on to improve your study skills? So for training purposes, not for actual study purposes, but for training purposes, when you're learning how to study the scriptures, I would recommend a minimum of 20 observations per verse on average. So if you're studying uh, three verses or if you're studying five verses, right, you're going to go for between 60 or 100 in the five verses case. I uh, Just to make sure that you are keeping up with that. And, and the reason I say on average is because if you're studying, for example, John 11, 34 through 36, uh, well, 11, 35 is Jesus wept. That's the entire verse. Yeah. And so either you're going to force, you know, a ton of extra textual observations into that passage just to do it, which I did. Somebody challenged me once, and so I, I did it just for the fun of it. But yeah, most of them end up being absences or extra textual things. Uh, but in that scenario, if you took 34, 35, and 36 together, then all of a sudden you say, oh, average of 20 per, that means I'm going to get 60 observations between those three verses, but you might have 30 from one, 10 from another, and so on. So that's what I recommend for training purposes. 
once you have done that enough, and I would say after you get past maybe 200 to 500 verses that you've been studying, you really start feeling confident. And it, on a cursory reading of the passage, you will start noticing things that you had never picked up on before. And so, you know, if I look at somebody before I've taught them how to study the scriptures, and I ask them, you know, tell me what this passage is about, what, what it means, what things you've learned from it, then they, they will give me a certain set that after I have taught them how to do Bible study and they have practiced and practiced and practiced doing these observations, all of a sudden their first impression cursory reading uh, instantly is bringing up tons of things that they were not able to do before they, they had practiced this. So that's why I say for, for, for training purposes, you want to do that. But when it comes to actual study, once you are trained and your mind just naturally starts pulling out these observations that you wouldn't have seen before, well, then you don't have to stick to hard numbers. Really, you do uh, what makes sense. But if you find yourself struggling with a passage, then I would go back and say, okay, now you're going to want to pull out as many observations as you can and use either 20 per verse or even 40 or 60 per verse as your benchmark whatever it takes until you can actually understand the passage or resolve that it's just an incomprehensible passage, which there are moments where we just can't understand why God said what he said. Sometimes there are things that aspects of theology that will never be complete for us. And that's okay. Yeah. You know, today I was trying to do 20 verses on Job uh, 49 one, I believe it was, which is just, sorry, 42 one, that's what it was, Job 42 one, which is, um, and Job answered the Lord. I got to nine and then I really slowed down. <laughs> it's, it's a tough right. thing to do. That's something I'll keep in mind. So let's go to uh, verse 19 here. And her husband, Joseph, being a, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Let's go 20 observations, see how fast we can get them, and then we'll call it a day. Joseph is her husband. Joseph right. is called a just man. Uh, he's a good religious man, and that's S. The repetition of jo describing Joseph and his character, him being a husband, being righteous, his character of not wanting to disgrace her, and his actions in light of that planning center way. I would call that a pattern, but yes, that's a beautiful observation. I'm going to misquote this first, see if we can get an absence from it. I'm willing, uh, willing to put her to shame. He delighted to divorce her loudly. The absence being uh, a complete lack of, of joy in having to do this. I like it. All right, we got four. Let's keep them coming. Um, I would say Joseph thinks that mary is lying to him now that's an interpretation so we'll, oh, we'll okay. get there next week but that's not said in the passage right correct yeah so we're going to leave that off the observational list i'll throw one out just as a grammatical point it opens with a conjunction and right so it's, it's specifically trying to tie the events that we just studied in verse 18 with uh what it's saying now the statement of joseph being a righteous man that's not been said already uh, I think just is what the uh, we had on our observation list already. Sure. Uh, divorce would have put her to shame. Rather, public divorce would have put her to shame. And I mean, we can get another one out of that. We can also say that uh, Joseph uh, tried to divorce her quietly. I think that's also a pattern where he's unwilling to put her to shame and also resolved to divorce her quietly. Right. Resolved is in the past tense, and it 
implies um, his decision was made. He made his decision and then he acted on it or planned to act on it. Where's the re word resolved in your translation? Are right you after using, shame. Are you using okay. the ESV? Correct. No, he's using NASB. Oh, gotcha. That's why. Yeah. yeah. It's right after shame. No, I, I, with the extra textual, can I take one from the next verse to put something in, in the light of that? Sure. Uh, unwillingness, the, the deliberation he takes in reaching this resolution was a protracted one because um, he didn't make the decision until after he had a dream. So he, you might say he slept on it. Yeah. And I'm going to throw another one out here and ask Joseph, uh, what word does your translation use instead of resolve? Let me see. Where was the word resolve again? It was after shame. Unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Planned. Okay. And you said NASB is what you're using? That's right. So that would be an extra textual because we're, we're looking at and how another translation interprets the passage. I uh, or rather uh, translates that particular Greek word that could be either planned or resolved. How many are we at, are we at now, John? We're at 11. So we oh, have nine more to go. We've got to push ourselves. The fact that he was unwilling to put to shame seems to be connected to the fact that he was a just man. He was unwilling to put her to shame because he is a just man. Okay. That might be an interpretation because now you're linking oh. to observation. I'm always jumping to the interpretations. <laughs> Granted, I'm giving a lot of leeway for the blend between them because we haven't jumped into interpretation yet. And we yeah. still want to discuss what the passage means to some degree. So there, there is a lot of leeway here. But for that particular one, I won't count that as an observation. Okay. Do cross-references cross count as extra Absolutely. Extra they do. Um, because looking at just the weight and context of the situation, uh, Deuteronomy 22.20 gives the layout of uh, uh, if people were basically, you know, having sex before marriage of, uh, you know, stoning them to death. So that, you know, just brings a lot of context to how careful Joseph is being in his actions to protect both himself, honestly, and Mary. Hmm. Good one. It describes Joseph as a just man rather than an, any other adjective. Like just is relevant for whatever reason in this decision making. Like, oh, it's not merciful, loving or something. Just. I like you know, I've seen just translated as righteous. Joseph, what does it say in the NASB there? How does it describe him? That's how mine is. It's righteous. Yeah, righteous. So I've seen it that way. So just and righteousness seems to have a, a sort of Greek root here. Come on, sorry. It says unwilling. It could say something like he didn't want to or he didn't like to, but he was unwilling to. I think that's more powerful than any other word. Principle-based rather than desire-based. Right. And extra textual is Hebrew culture was a shame culture. So shame would have been a relevant thing to include here. It's like a social stigma. Yeah, Another to add to that. Just, just to add on to that, Aaron, the putting to her to shame, if she had been put to shame, that would be the end of her life. Right. You know, mobility was terrible. You know, sometimes you couldn't just pack up and move somewhere else very easily anyway. And even if you did, you know, the stigma is going to follow you. You probably couldn't get married again. Yeah. Another extra textual, I guess, pattern is Elizabeth 
had a child at very old age after you know way after she could and then mary is having a child before she's married or even has done anything with her husband yeah what are we at now 17 three more to go we can do it what's going to be funny is when uh, matt edits this down to take out all the awkward silences <laughs> and it sounds like you guys are just rattling these off <laughs> yeah for the record there, there are some long pauses between these answers <laughs> i mean i almost want to go for the really silly easy statements that you would do if you were trying to get to 60 you know like uh, he resolved to divorce her quietly oh she's a female you know but that that's just too silly that's an assumption though um oh yeah well in these <laughs> in assumer the gender <laughs> <laughs> How about and her husband Joseph? It puts the feminine before the masculine there, rather than mm. Joseph's it, husband. I, or I didn't realize the ESV was the woke Bible. True. Being is present tense, so he is currently a just man. I don't know if we could say that in the past he was, or if in the future he would be. Nice. One more to go. I'll try this one. I'll emphasize the verb to put. His action would have been the thing that put her to shame. So he has this power over her. He could put her to shame or he could not. The unwillingness there led him to do it quietly. But he could put her to shame or not. Okay. Anything anybody else wants to throw in real fast? Extra textually, we don't know when Joseph heard this. Because we know from Luke that Elizabeth goes to... Sorry, that, that Mary goes to Elizabeth, stays there for three months. We actually can't tell from that or from this when Joseph hears the news. Like, was she obviously pregnant or did she go to Joseph and tell him as soon as she was told, as we learned in Luke, she was told by Gabriel. Like, so that the, 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 um, we were talking about time earlier, but here's an absence. We don't actually know what part of the pregnancy Joseph makes his resolution in. Right. So there's another time pattern that you can observe here, which is to say that in the verse 18, we're talking about past tense stuff, right? And then we get to a Joseph being a just man, and it's talking about, like uh, Matt had said, his present character, I, and unwilling to put her to shame as kind of like a future tense thing that he would have done in the future if he had made a different choice. I, or even if you want to go into verse 20, it talks about... I the the prophecy of what would be coming forward with jesus birth right so there is kind of this past present future uh, pattern that's developing here and another one that i don't think i heard anybody say this before but the word for uh, divorce in that so the the main word for divorce is apollyon which is uh, used in matthew 532 for example uh, so later on the same author uses the word apollyon uh, when he's saying that everyone who divorces his wife, except for uh, sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. So that famous passage on divorce and remarriage, right? Apollyon is used for divorce versus here it is digmatisai. I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> but whatever it is, uh, it's uh, translated in the Greek English, uh, common, not commentary, the transliteration that I use, uh, to expose publicly. Yeah, okay. Hmm. Actually, no. Scratch all of that. I was looking at the wrong word. It is oh a polysi. So it's a it's a version of a polyon. I was looking at not divorce. Must be the 
unwilling to put her to shame. To put her to shame is what I think is the exposed publicly. Not willing I see, to so right. So like, put her to shame is what the one that's stigmatizing. Um, whereas the divorce is a polysi, which is another conjugation. So it is the same word for divorce, but the other one just has a different way that the Greek translates it than the ESV, which is kind of in, or the Greek interlinear Bible does, which is interesting to me. Hey guys, I got to run. I'm going to make Joseph the host so he can't try to leave early. Okay. I, I, I think we're done if you just wanted to uh, wrap up now. Yeah, that'd be cool. That's our study of Matthew 1. And uh, we're, we're instead of observations, so we're done background observation. Next week, we'll go over interpretation and application. We'll do them jointly and uh, spend a little bit of time walking through what that looks like. Uh, we may pick up a little bit with 18 and 19, but we'll for sure start with 20. Uh, as noted before, once we're done with the how to study the Bible, uh, kind of doing it together, we'll be going through much larger sections of scripture, but we at least wanted to give this to you guys to have an opportunity to see what we do when we're preparing for a Bible study. So that way, when we're actually letting you listen in on our Bible studies, you know what the background work has done uh, as you've been listening into us doing this together. So does anybody want to pray to close this out for the day? I nominate Joseph. I nominate Joseph too. <laughs> All right. Too late for me. I'll take uh, 30 observations in my prayer. <laughs> Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word as we understand uh, the significance uh, of who you are that's put into this word that centuries later we can study and know you and find salvation and joy and instruction in life through it. I'd ask that uh, everyone listening in and us would take to heart and be convicted by your scripture to learn from it, to be uh, under it, and to be humble, and just willing to submit to your word above all else. Uh, give us wisdom as we apply, and give us not a gushy love, as John mentioned, but a love that is uh, obedient and caring. I pray things in your name. Amen. 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 Amen.